Hello, this is Geeks Unleashed, and this is our second episode of our Fantastic Four month of May. I'm Mark. I'm Jasmine. Uh, as of episode 100, each week we'll be talking about our current viewing, reading, or playing geek habits while mixing in a review of every comic or gaming movie adaption uh, as we work our way through all that content. Uh, however, do something different this month, uh, sorry, for this episode, and we're going to be discussing a documentary about the movie that we covered last episode. I think this is the first documentary we've ever covered, actually. It is, yeah. It is the first. Yeah. All right. But before we get started, if you're watching on YouTube, thank you so much. We appreciate that. We would also love it if you would like this video and subscribe to our channel. And if you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, we appreciate that as well. We would also very much love it if you would leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Uh, also, just a reminder that we have a Ko-Fi. If you would like to donate any kind of funding, that would be much appreciated. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, here we go. Continuing on with our month of Fantastic Four. I I gotta say, this documentary about this 1994 film that we just did last week was so interesting. I watched it twice. Like mm-hmm. I watched it one day and then like thought to myself, damn, that's shady. And then like I watched it again the next day. Like that it, it just amazes me, like the way that Hollywood works. Like this, this was much, much better than I expected it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, okay. So, uh, uh, <laughs> me off a little bit. Okay. So this is called, it's a long title, Doomed, exclamation mark, the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four. So uh, this documentary came out in 2015 mm-hmm. of the 1994 mm. movie. So right. it was this this documentary was written by Marty Langford and directed by Marty Langford. And it stars most of the cast and crew from the film. So it stars uh, Carl Chiafalo, Roger Corman, Joseph Culp, Jonathan Fernandez, Glenn, Glenn Garland, Kat Green, Chris Gore, Sean Howe, Alex Hyde-White, Lloyd Kaufman, Ole Sasson, Mark Skies, Sykes, I'm sorry, Mark Sykes, Michael Bailey Smith, Rebecca Saab, Jay Underwood, and John Bulich. So it's never released in any cinema. Uh, it's online available. Mm-hmm. You can actually watch this on um, Prime, Apple TV, that kind of thing. Uh, it's a couple of quid. So this was released originally on the 10th of July, 2015. Got a running time of 85 minutes. Had a budget of 5926 US can't find out how much it's earned so far. However, I, I do from memory remember a Kickstarter being in place. And I think to the best of my recollection, uh, recollection uh, that was fully funded. Don't know what they are asking for. Um, however, I did find the Indiegogo page. And on Indiegogo, that has made 4,847 uh, sterling. So, I mean, if it's anything to go by the Indiegogo, it made the budget back. And let's assume from <clears throat> ongoing sales and uh, Kickstarter, they probably did get back their budget. So yeah. uh, I assume it's made an element of a profit. Don't know what that is. Yeah, maybe a few bucks that. here and there. I mean, let's be honest. It's probably made. It's probably at least brought in ten, fifteen k, if not twenty k. Wow, you think that much? Wow. Yeah. I, well, okay. obviously, the Kickstarter would you know if the, even if the kickstarter brought in five grand yeah and i don't know how you know i don't know what the sales would be like they're obviously not huge but I, it's, it's got to have brought in 15 grand at least so All i right. mean I'm, I'm, i don't i don't think marty's made a massive yeah, I mean, amount like, of money yeah, he, i don't think he put that much money in his pocket yeah 
So anyway, summary of the documentary from IMDb is a documentary that tells the history of the Fantastic Four 1994, which was executive produced by Roger Corman. It's a very simple premise here. So yeah. Um, as I've said already on this episode, we're looking at doing the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four. This is a Kickstarter and on Indiegogo funded documentary about the unreleased Fantastic Four movie. Yeah. I wasn't able to find the Kickstarter, but I have found the Indiegogo. There's a lot of text here. Um, I thought it might be fun to just reference some of the uh, the backing options and some of the text that they've thrown up. So um, actually, he puts in a good summary here. So this is, it actually has Marty Langford on here. He was based in Los Angeles. It says, the, the 1994, the Fantastic Four film produced by Roger Corman's New Horizons and Bern Einreich's new Constantine film directed by Ole uh, Sassone, um, <clears throat> written by Craig Nivers, is looked at very differently today when it was in the fall of 1992 uh, when Enrich who, and then he put in brackets, who died in January 2011, brought us the, <laughs> brought the property to Coleman. Exactly what was discussed between the two men prior to the deal being struck isn't known, but the result of their collaboration is the, the movie has never been viewed legally by anyone in the world other than those directly involved in the production. The movie is available to those of an internet connection or to visitors of any... M- m- any of the many comic book sci-fi horror conventions at which dozens of dealers sell pirated DVDs <laughs> with tacky inkjet printed <laughs> inserts. Uh, but why not an official release? Uh, then he goes on to say, my name is Marty Langford and my producing partner is Mark Sykes. My quest is that uh, of, my quest is that of a curious cinephile. Basically, a movie fan, uh, a guy who wants to unravel a cinematic mystery um, regarding a film I love. Mark, he was a crew member who was involved in the development mm-hmm. of the film as an employee of Roger Corman's Concord New Horizons. And to quote Mark, a lifelong friend of mine, he may not know who dug the graves, but he knows where the bodies are buried. So. <laughs> It goes on a little bit here. I won't, I won't, I mean, there's a lot more in here. So if you just Google it. However, I thought it was quite good that they've also put some of the, you know, when you back at Indiegogo or Kickstarter, yeah. you, you've got several layers. So at £8, which is 10 US dollars, it was at the time, uh, that pledges the Doom Bot. Um, so uh, I won't go into each one of what you get. The next level up is the Red Ghost. Then after that is the Awesome Android. The, Mich- the Impossible Man. Uh, it goes on and on. Oh, at £41, you can be the Mole Man. Oh. At, eight- at £82, you can be the Puppet Master. Um, at £409, you can be the Frightful Four. Oh. And at- actually, three people did back that. So he got three lots of 400 quid from that. Um, at £818, you can be the Galactus, but nobody backed that on Indiegogo. And at two grand, you can be Doctor Doom. Uh, strangely enough, nobody about that either. And at four grand, the ultimate nullifier, which is a weapon that I know the Fantastic Four have used in the films, so in the comics. Sorry. Um, anyway, <laughs> there's a lot there. I know, like I say, they, they put this together from crowdfunding. And... Yeah, they started it, I think, in 2013 and then uh, released their final cut in 2015. Mm-hmm. 
So it probably did get a nice bump because that last Fantastic Four reboot came out in 2015 as well. So mm-hmm. I'm, I assume every time we get a Fantastic Four something, I'm pretty sure that this this documentary gets a bump too. I think like when any comic book related content hits the cinemas, like even when I walked out of um, Shazam, it was going through my mind. You know about reading a Shazam comic. I'm not that bothered about reading a Shazam comic, but I started suddenly in my mind thinking, "Oh, actually, might be quite nice." But um, I've got more connection with reading the Fantastic Four, as mm-hmm. I said in the previous episode. I read the Mark Wade run and a few other runs, and I I do like the Fantastic Four in the comics. So <laughs> I think first off, actually, you you kind of touched on it a minute ago. Just a summary of your thoughts on the actual documentary. Now I like you i actually watched this twice i watched yeah. it first and i was like actually this is yeah it was more interesting. super interesting it was really interesting yeah. I, I was really like really taken back by it and i didn't write any notes the first time around i didn't expect there to be the level of um information right that they put in this documentary uh, and i guess i didn't think about i guess well as they said it the shady world of hollywood right, right? and and right. I know you hear about the shady world, shady world of Hollywood, and you know there's unfortunately the what's it called the um, those men that have gone to prison for doing things they shouldn't have done, uh, the Me Too movement. So I know that there's that shady world. But actually, I didn't know there was this shady world of Hollywood. So, oh, Mark! Like making movies off, off like air. That. I have got stories from oh. from my friends that are in the industry. Right. Stories. So, what? I just didn't know, and I guess, you know, as I was watching this documentary, I thought, do you know what's going to happen years from now? There is going to be a documentary about that Batgirl movie. Yeah, there's going to have to be, like, that's all, I had that in my head, like, the whole time I was watching this documentary, I was like, what if someone still has those negatives, and they, like, eventually, in another few years, we do get a bootleg copy of that Batgirl film. That Batgirl Batgirl movie is going to make it out eventually. And someone, I mean, like, you have to think that it has to, like, right? Like, someone, someone will leak it, and uh, the moment one person gets it out, yep, all it takes is one. That's all it takes. Somebody's got a copy somewhere. Somebody does. I know for sure yeah. somebody does. And I, I mean, like, I'm have you heard you. that? Have you heard that? Then not. What? Have you about, heard that? Like, unofficially mm-hmm. heard that? Or no, like, okay. not about Batgirl specifically, but like, yeah. even me, like when I worked at the movie theater, mm-hmm. I. I don't know. Not that I'm going to get in trouble now, but like I used to keep trailers and stuff like I would keep all kinds of shit that I wasn't supposed to keep just just for myself. Like, I know somebody has that background movie. I know they do. Yeah. So um, but no, I yeah, I watched. So anyway, to come back to this particular thing, I actually watched it twice. And I thought it's weird to actually have this gap. So we we reviewed the movie. Mm -hmm. And I think when you review these movies, any movie like you know how the dark man thing etc that spawn you know movies that we probably don't consider as high caliber as we're kind of used to in this day and age right you forget about the people right yeah actually i I did feel bad (laughs) like the people the people that are behind these movies and you know the fact that these people are human like me and you you know Mm -hmm. like i had a bad day at work um yesterday and uh somebody going nuts at me for something customer and um and like you know it just makes me think you know they they clearly didn't give a shit that i'm human and um and how they spoke to me and uh 
and that's fine like because obviously i have to deal with the public but it does make me think how when we do these episodes of geeks unleashed we, we talk about our you know things that we enjoy and mm. yeah we, we will see <laughs> we'll talk about how well they're put together you know man thing we obviously completely trashed and but we did talk about the actors themselves and said you know because it was so old we'd seen the improvement Mm -hmm. of those actors now these are not actors that i have seen in current day things so to actually see the documentary and for me one of the things that really stood out to me was actually how heartbreaking it was just yeah like these people even to this day and you can see the actors who played oh, yeah. Reed Richards. Man, and he has Doom. got some grudges. You can oh, yeah, tell. Yeah. He has got yeah. some grudges. So, but how seriously they took it. The, and yeah. the actor who played Doctor Doom, like you can see some sort of thespian. Yeah. You know, just like and, and I looked at his IMDB expecting to see some actual traction. And he's not in that much. It's mm-hmm. very spotty. So again, I think you could see why a lot of people kind of gave this movie a lot of goodwill yeah and and they obviously thought this movie was gonna be a big thing so yeah that was the thing that the director started off with he was like we all thought oh my god we have landed a friend like a marvel franchise like this is gonna be it like this is gonna be our launching pad all of us (laughs) so and and, that sucks so roger corman who i had to look up on imdb (laughs) He's the king of B movies. I mean, it's it, not even B movies. They are Z I mean, movies. They, they are, are absolutely terrible. But like, those are the kinds of movies that turn into cult classics. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he he is behind some absolute. So so basically, it says in the documentary that he's known for things like the Toxic Avenger, mm-hmm. and you know when 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 Jurassic Park was being made, he right. made his own shittier version. I forget yeah. the name of it, but like Carnosaur. Oh yeah, something like Carnosaurus or something yeah. like that. Like, and uh, basically, he he is the B movie king, mm-hmm. and he comes across quite nicely in the in the yeah. He seems like a nice old guy. Yeah, and it just made me wonder, like, who or I'll put this to you, who or who or why do people watch these things? Like, I think it's just like the thrill of it, right? I think a lot of people have this feeling of like, this is old hollywood this yeah. is how things used to be done before we had the mar the marvel as we know it today like in in 2023 versus mm. marvel from 1993 um but i think like there are there's a big contingent of people who enjoy the process of filmmaking regardless of how up to date the technology stays like i think a lot of times they just kind of are a lot of these old school people they're like Back in my day, we did it this way. Because, mm. um, like, even in 1993, when they were filming this movie, they were filming on actual film film reels, like, with those mm. gigantic camera. Like, I mean, they, they were using equipment that was from the 50s and 60s. You know what I mean? Like, they, they weren't even using updated equipment to make this film. So I think that there is, there's a, a small following of people that just enjoy this level of film i was looking i, I saw i did google as well i typed into google literally why do people watch b movies um because i was like there must be somebody that's written something about this and i came across an article where somebody said if you think about 
like, you know, um, I don't know, Black Adam. Mm -hmm. So the funding on that was pretty high. I can't remember what it was, 200 million or something. And that that would have been funded by 10, 20, 30 people, Mm -hmm. different people putting in their cash, you know, 100 grand, 200 grand, 300 grand. Now, the level of time and investment to make Black Adam, you know, Mm -hmm. a year, two years, before you start Four years in this case, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Like, before you see your return. However, with these B-movies, a lot of them are made within 10 days, three weeks. And, yeah, okay, you might be putting in 10 grand or 50 grand. You know, maybe not the same level you'd be putting in there. Um, your 50 grand might actually fund the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these B-movies do clearly have a fan base, um, you know, DVDs or uh, Amazon or whatever it is, mm-hmm. <laughs> but your return may be lower than a Black Adam movie, but it's probably quicker. Yeah. So you might be putting in, you might say, be the guy who puts ten grand in, and maybe you get fifteen back after yeah. say, say I don't know, three months or something like that. You know, because mm-hmm. they'll, they'll get they get these things out quickly. Yes. Uh, and that's the kind of thing I gathered from from this movie was yeah, it wasn't uh, unexpected to be putting together something like this so right but also like um, they they were known for those films that go straight to dvd like they were known for not doing things that actually had a theatrical release and so mm-hmm. the fact that they started the, the crew at least started under the impression hey the producer told us that this one is going to be released into a, a cinema not a dvd or a vhs release at the time yeah, and yeah. i think like i think for someone who if you have spent, you know, the past five years working on films that go straight to VHS, when someone comes to you and they're like, hey, we're doing the same shit we always do. We still have a shitty budget. We've got a short time frame, but this one is going to theaters. Mm-hmm. I think that that makes you operate differently because now you just know off the muscle without anybody really having any idea of the projections of what the film is going to do. Like, you have an opportunity to, to reach more people than you do by going straight to VHS, right? Like the fact that they all thought that this was a theatrical release, I think that all of the people involved in the actual making, not the powers that be, but the people involved in the making of the film worked their asses off because this very likely would have been their first theatrical release. Oh, like you, well, they basically were all told this mm-hmm. would be going to the cinema. Like yeah. to, to movie theaters like so everybody right now i know i know so like the guy who plays reed richards mm-hmm. um he, he he has had he had some bigger roles a lot um earlier on um i think i said to you like biggles um mm-hmm. uh, but he generally i've got his imdb up here but he's generally a one episode man he's one of those guys yeah who's in one, one he's episode a journeyman as they call him yeah, like NCIS, CSI, yeah. you know. Uh, but pre but pre this, back in the nineties, he was in bigger things. So, you know, you know he, did, he did a couple of episodes of Murder She Wrote. He hasn't really progressed too much. Yeah. But I, but I, I the one thing that always stood out to me was was Biggles and Jay Underwood. I I did see him on a few things, but The Boy Who Could Fly, which as a kid I loved that movie, The Boy Who Could Fly. I don't I don't remember it now, but basically he was a boy who developed the ability to fly, um, which you know it was a kind of a drama. But other than that, he I think at the time it. though he was one of the bigger names in this film. Too. Yeah, I think he probably was the big him and um, 
uh, like I say, Alex Hyde was probably the bigger names on there. Mm -hmm. um, the rest of them were fairly unknowns. Yeah. So <laughs> well, they weren't big, big names. They were yeah. kind of had, uh, you know, some collateral. Yeah, uh, some bit of notoriety, but uh, like yeah. they also knew what they were getting themselves into because everybody knew who Roger Corman was and the kind of movies that Roger Corman did. Yeah. So they knew what they were walking into. Um, but it's just that they all walked in under the assumption that this is going to be a theatrical release. So and the I casting think, for, oh, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, like at the very beginning, when you when the documentary introduces you to Roger Corman, hmm. one of the first things he says was like a big red flag for me. He said that uh, Burnt Eichhart called him, and uh, Eichinger called him and was like, "Yo, can you make a Fantastic Four movie?" for $1 million and start production before the end of this year. This mm. man picked up the phone and called someone in September and said, if I give you a million dollars, can you begin production on a film within the next three months? And like, I mean, for, if you've never been in, like, that's unheard of. Like, that would never, ever be the case. Like, nowadays, to go from the initial phone call to an actual production start date three within months. within three months for a superhero film that that just would never happen right mm -hmm. and i think like the whole conversation that roger corman describes at the very beginning when um the when uh Eichinger reached out and was like i have a problem i think you can help me with it mm -hmm. okay first of all you called me with a problem you called me and said that you had a problem that's a that's a red that's one red flag right and then he was like so can you you know can you do the film for a million dollars and can you start it before the end of 1992 can you can you do that and roger corman was like i don't know let me talk to my guys and i'll get back to you in a couple of days so he gets back to him in a couple of days and he's like what's the budget and he's like at first he tells him 30 million and he's like okay but how much money do you actually have to give me and he said a million he's like okay well I just want you to know, like, for a million bucks, I can make it, but it ain't going to be that great. And the guy goes, I don't care. It doesn't make any difference. I just have to start shooting. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, but like that should have that should have raised all kinds of red flags to me. And, and it did raise a red flag to one guy because they went to another production company first. They went to... Um, Troma Entertainment and Troma yeah. Entertainment was another low budget film feature film kind of thing. And that guy that was the head of that entertainment company knew Stanley. And so he turned it down because he said he didn't want to burn any bridges with Stan Lee by doing a shitty Fantastic Four movie. Yeah. And so yeah, after that other entertainment company turned it down, the this Eichinger guy went to uh roger corman and roger corman said yes but that other guy had the good sense to not do it and he was like it didn't make sense i didn't want to burn any bridges and he said there was not enough money for me to make to do this <laughs> i just i thought that was really honest he was like when i looked at the what's in it for me like it didn't add up like it, it just yeah. it didn't make sense for me to put my company on the line to make this film for this guy in that time frame um but i just think that that's i mean i don't i don't i've never worked with 
B level stuff. Like I did, I did intern at New Line Cinema, which New Line Cinema did. Uh, I want to say they did Shazam, um, but like I, so I, I have seen the inner workings of like big studios and and how they prioritize their things, mm-hmm. but I've never worked with a B studio to see how things work there. But it just, I mean, to me, like if I'm in charge of a project and someone comes to me and they're like. I have this much money and I have this deadline. I need it to get done, but I don't care what it looks like. Like, mm-hmm. I don't care what kind of profession I'm in. The fact that you don't give a shit what the end product or the end result is going to be, that just seems so problematic. Like, how could you have a budget and a time frame, but then you don't care what the product actually looks like? That doesn't make any sense to me. Like, yeah, no, I agree. You know what I mean? Like, I, I like at my job today, like if someone came to me and they're like, okay, I got a million dollars to spend on office furniture, which is, you know, that's what I do. And they're like, I have to install it by December 31st. And I don't care what it looks like. And I'm like, I, that, I, that's not enough for me to work with. Like, I'd assume in your role though, somebody said that they had a, like a budget for the year they had to use up. So. Yeah. But if somebody came to me at the end of September and said that they needed to install by December 31st, that would be a very, very difficult task because a lot of this stuff has like a 12 to 14 week like lead time in order for mm-hmm. the stuff to be manufactured and and produced and shipped and all of that. Like I, that's a that's a tight time frame, even for me. Like I can't imagine. I don't know. I just can't imagine how I, I guess, though, because like Roger Corman is known for doing B movies and for doing them quickly, like. He like Eichinger reached out knowing who he was reaching out to. And I just think like, I don't know, like, I why do you why would you say yes to that? Like, it just sounds shady from the very beginning. Well, one of the things I think like was kind of heavily implied through this was I think they put in 750 or something. And Roger Corman put in 750. Mm -hmm. But it said his 750 were with services. So they weren't sure what exactly he he was so he was able to use his studio his Mm. people his editors all this kind of stuff so there was some things that were inferred through the documentary that i don't know like if an editor should be charging yeah 850 dollars a week like yeah yeah like but should they be charging a different level of you know like 300 dollars or 400 dollars or yeah whatever yeah whatever there seemed to me that there was inflation of costings Mm -hmm. that potentially so I assume Roger Coleman had a an inkling. This is what probably was. He, you know, he doesn't say that, and it's not. So uh, he, yeah, he never says it. And I've watched after I watched this documentary, I went and I found a couple of other interviews with him and read a couple of other articles. And he he like keeps his story. But I feel like someone as experienced as him, he knew exactly what was going on. Like mm-hmm. he knew exactly why that guy was reaching out to him. But on you know on so like if i had put my business hat on like everybody that was involved in the making of the film got paid so Mm. it's not like nobody was paid for their time you know what i mean like they got paid for their time it's just that they didn't get a theatrical release like they wanted Mm -hmm. and from a business point of view like if if i were that shady i'd be like well i mean you you got paid for your time so i don't see the problem like (laughs) you know what i mean like i made a business decision that was good for me and you made your money as well so like what's the problem 
I thought, so actually talk about budgets. These are the things I wrote down, um, which came from the documentary was. <laughs> so the warehouse that they, they, Oh um, my God, the warehouse. So the warehouse that they were um, operating out of had condemned written on the back. Of yes. It. <laughs> that building had they been were, condemned by the LA County fire marshal. They also recycling some of the, uh, Prop, uh, props yep. from Carnosaur, the, yep. uh, the Jurassic Park's ripoff. Yep. Other than the spacesuits, the spandex, the radioactive yep. suits, and the wedding dress, all the other clothes were their own clothes. Yep. So the, there's no is, wardrobe. No wardrobe. Uh, um, the only they, suit that they made was like the thing that, yeah. and, but they only oh. made one. They made one version, and that was it. Yeah. Actually, yeah. And, and to be honest, it looks like some actual money did go into that. They had animatronics in that face yeah. and stuff like that. So um, they, they when they did the castings, so to jump back to the castings a little bit, when they were doing the castings, because they were told it was Fantastic Four, a lot of them were going into the belief that it was a big budget 30 million movie. Mm-hmm. It's not really fair that I, they didn't tell them that. Um, but when they were looking at the castings, I thought it was interesting that Marcus Mark Ruffalo yes. had read for this movie. Yep. Um, and um, oh, what's his name? Titus. Uh, uh, Titus Welliver. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. He Patrick read for Waterburn. It as well. Yeah, loads of loads of big people read for it. Nick Casavetes. Well. Oh yeah, loads loads of big names read for yeah. this and could have been in this. And it's probably very lucky that they were not. Mark in this movie. Ruffalo got real lucky. Oh, if he was in this, real I imagine lucky. there would have been some damage to his career. Yeah. So, uh, let's be honest. Everyone that was in this movie has gone the opposite way of where right. they thought thought it was right. going to go. Um, but, yeah, they, they said that basically the night or a couple of nights before they started shooting, they were invited all around to um, someone's house, whatever, and then it became very obvious there was no money for this film. Yeah. <laughs> so, there was, like, uh, there was no rap party. There was no money for promotion promoting it. Like, mm. the, the actor who played Ben Grimes, Spent ben Grimm. over ben Grimm. oh Ben Grimm, sorry. Spent over twelve thousand dollars out of his own pocket to help promote this film. Because they all thought this was going to be their big break. Like, right. So many. Right. So, so many they, people. on their dime, they went to conventions. They went yeah. to they went to Comic Con. They went to signings. They had all of this. They did all of this stuff on their own. The mm. only thing that the studio paid for was to ship the suit, the thing suit. Oh yeah, because they, they didn't want to lose that. Like, that was right. <laughs> Yeah, um, it was it was wild, but like also at this time in '92, one of the other producers for the film was like, everybody had like this bad impression of Marvel because at the time Marvel was only coming out with shitty stuff. They had that really bad Spider-Man in the '70s. They had the really bad Captain America film in the late '80s. They had done that really bad Punisher movie with Dolph Lundgren um, as Frank Castle, and they had they had the Lou Ferrigno um, Hulk show. The yeah. TV show, but which like, I think that was the best thing they kind of had was that. Yeah, but but they weren't ha- too happy with the Daredevil and Thor right. adaptions. So. Right. So, but like one of the guys was like, but Marvel had felt like it was on the up and up. Like they were like, we had an agreement with James Cameron to direct the Amazing Spider-Man, James Cameron, Avatar, and Terminator, and Aliens, like. Really, in this shitty ass Marvel universe that you guys have built, you think James Cameron is going to step in here on your million dollar budget and do anything? I don't think so. Right. So they had James Cameron that was going to do a Spider Man film. Yeah. 
they had Wesley Snipes signed and sealed to do Black Panther back then. And they had Wes Craven, everybody's favorite horror director, Wes Craven, to do a Doctor Strange film. So the guy, one of the guys was like, everything just seemed like that old era of Marvel was like behind them. And so they looked at this Fantastic Four film and thought to themselves, finally, Marvel is like taking itself out of the shithole that it's been in. And it seems like Marvel is going in a different direction. And boy, oh boy, were they wrong. Because none of those things panned out. Wesley Snipes obviously didn't get Black Panther, but six years later, we did get him as Blade. Wes Craven didn't touch Marvel anything. And then, of course, James Cameron never, ever, ever got anywhere close to Marvel properties. Um, one of the things I thought also was interesting was in this um, documentary with Stan Lee. Mm-hmm. So they all said that Stan Lee visited the set several times right even brought donuts uh, once apparently yeah i was just about to say that and that that was said through gritted teeth as well mm-hmm. so um and now it, i i get the feeling he probably did visit the set yeah and probably did show a lot of interest however they uh they heard a rumor that he didn't think much of it they said that really hurt their feelings yeah uh, and even apparently later on even denied that movie was ever made yeah However, they did find some camera footage of a convention he was at where he did admit there was a Fantastic Four movie. He did, yes. Um, and he said that, however, he's, he did sort of a long, I can't remember his words in that uh, convention now, but he said it probably didn't think it would be very good or whatever. And he said, it's, he said the lawyers just gave it to Roger Corman. So he actually did admit the Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie did exist. Mm-hmm. So um at the time this documentary was made, Stan Lee was alive, and they did say he declined he, to be in the yes. documentary. Yes, he did. So, of course he did. <laughs> like, so he love- even oh. said somewhere that this movie was never meant to be seen by any living human. <laughs> and I was like, damn, that burn. Ouch. Yeah. Dan. So, I wonder how much he would have known. I probably, if he'd visited the set a lot, I assume he didn't know that this was being made to, to keep the rights. So, he knew it was being made to keep the rights because Fox, oh, not Fox, because uh, Eichinger and his production company had reached out for an extension and Marvel told them no. Oh, uh, okay. So they reached, uh, so, okay, so the whole thing with the rights and the options. Okay. So Bernd Eichinger had bought the rights to the Fantastic Four in 1986. But the problem with the rights that he had were that he had seven years. You have seven years to do something with these rights. You can't you can't just hold them forever. Okay. And then once you once you use once you make something, then the seven years starts over again. Okay. So that was the rush. And that is obviously something that none of the crew and the actors knew going into this, but that was the reason that they were rushing. He was contractually obligated if he wanted to keep the rights, which he paid about $250,000 for the Fantastic Four rights in 1986. In order for him to keep the rights to those characters, he had to make a film. And the film had to be made before December 31st, 1992. That was was his deadline. It just had to start. It didn't have to finish, but it had to start before December 31st, 1992. They started production on December 28th, 1992. They started yeah. production three days before he was going to lose the rights to this film. 
Crazy, hey. And so his the the million dollar budget for this film was cheaper than him losing the rights and then negotiating new rights with Marvel. Oh, which yeah, is, which not, is why he either. did it the way that he did it. Like a million dollars in the trash was worth it because then he turned right around and as quickly as 1995, they started, they gave the helm to Chris Columbus, who people might be familiar with from Harry Potter. Uh, so they gave Chris Columbus a free slate to make his version of a Fantastic Four film. And Chris Columbus spent two years working on the scripting and all of that kind of behind the scenes stuff, the pre-production stuff for a Fantastic Four film. And then he was worried because by his estimates, the film that he wanted to make, he estimated at the time it would have cost $280 million to make his version of the Fantastic Four. And him and the powers that be went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And they were like, no, that's not going to happen. We're not giving you $280 million to make this movie. So he left. He left and then someone else came in and took over. Um, that person left. And finally, it wasn't until, I want to say 2003. It, it Obviously, it was before the rights expired again. But yeah. that is how we ended up getting a Fantastic Four movie in 2005 and then the sequel. And then that's how we got a reboot in 2015 because they have a tight window where they have to do something with the franchise every so many years or they the they it, rights yeah. revert back to Marvel. It's the same with Sony and the Spider-Man films, isn't it? So yeah. that's why they keep, they keep making That's why films. we get 50 bajillion Spider-Man reboots. Yes. Yeah. I I mean, it's just super interesting the way that that works. But like, essentially, the powers that be for this film never, ever intended for it to be really that was never their intention. Their intention was here is the proof on paper that we are in production for a Fantastic Four film. Now, they don't ever have to promise to release it. They just have to mm. promise to make it. <laughs> that's that's all they're obligated to do. Their obligation is to make a film. Right. It is not to release a film. So uh, they I... had exactly what they wanted. Like he was like a million dollars. No problem. Like here's a million dollars. I made my movie. I'm keeping my rights. And then he went on. I think the first Fantastic Four film made like 300 some odd million. And then the next one made about 300 some odd million. So he took his shitty $1 million drop in the bucket and turned it into 300 some odd million dollars a few years later. I think, I think, um, uh, Oh, sorry, of course, I say now. Um, with the um, oh, crap, I've completely gone blank. Sorry, I was waiting for you to finish. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry. No, no, it's fine. Um, yeah. So with, with the uh, film, to be honest, I oh that was it. Sorry, the, with the starting of the the twenty eighth, mm -hmm. it, it was where they said it throughout the film was they obviously when they the actors and the directors and um that's basically the people that are making the film not the decision makers so the decision makers pretty much knew this is what this was about yeah but the actual the directors the editors the music right. people the, the yeah the actors the everyone oh, yeah, and the music people the, put so much more money into this yeah, film. They, 
everybody thought this was actually a genuine film that was, and they were all told, no, it's a real film, it's all going yes. to theatres, et cetera. And I think it was the lady who played um, Susan Storm said, if they only had to start before the end of the year, why not just cut us off? You know, why bother even completing the film? Mm-hmm. So they actually completed the whole film. They did special, they had special effects, they did everything, whatever. Uh, so they, they sort of rushed this shoot and then they, they put it all together um, over like 10 days or something. Um, uh, and then and then it kind of went into a, it got made quickly. Oh, sorry, it got filmed quickly. You know, mm-hmm. scripts done, everything was done quickly. But then what happened was it went into a development limbo. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, even the, the actor who played uh, Victor Von Doom, he even made a thing about it so, so wasteful, you know, mm-hmm. just all of it, just all of their time and everything. Really what would have been better is actually after two or three days, and this happens a lot, like even in TV shows, that yeah, actually they they get put they get cancelled one episode in because actually mm-hmm. they're like no and that's why they have pilots you know so the, the, I think if they'd have turned around after two days and said to everybody oh look actually <clears throat> this isn't going to work in some ways that may have been more respectful to these actors' time yeah and and their hearts and you know because that everybody bought into this being their big break and hence. Right. They got a lot of goodwill from these actors mm-hmm. and actually a lot of these actors and other people put in some of their own time and money. Um, yeah, yeah. You think about all the comic conventions that they went to and yeah. the guy who played Ben Grimm, he put 12 grand in, like you say, but yeah. they, they invested a lot of their own time because they all thought they're all probably all sitting behind the scenes. Like this is it. This is it. Like yeah. after this, after this, we're going to be in, the Jurassic Parks, the the Mission Impossible's, you know, this we're going to be we're going to be front name people after this, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to we're going to command our own, you know, we're going to be able to turn around and say, yeah, <laughs> they probably thought loads of things, but anyway, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was sort of once it went into the development limbo, did they start to? That was at the point where up. they should have been like, okay, we're just going to can it. Like, yeah, you made the crew, then go through finding. Um, they found like some shitty uh, visual effects person oh, that yeah, lied on their resume that said that they worked on Independence Day, but they only did storyboards for Independence Day. They actually didn't do any actual visual effects. And so they wasted time with that guy. Then they had to take his shitty work and give it to someone else and ask mm. this other studio, this visual effects studio to come step in and like move as fast as they could. And it was just like, why did you let them go through all of these iterations of stuff? And then on top of all of that, why did you continue to let these actors go and promote it? Like mm-hmm. you even made a trailer. Like you had a, a theatrical trailer that they, they showed, played. They yeah, they took it with them when the trailer, they went to conventions yeah. and it just like played on a loop at the booth wherever they were. Like you let these people put in all of this extra time and extra effort. And while all the whole time you're sitting back there thinking to yourself, great and and it was so like it was so interesting like i i can appreciate people that hold a grudge and like like we said we okay so we reviewed the film last week but we both said that we thought that alex hyde white was the best part of the film like he definitely put in a lot of effort into reed richards and like when you hear him talk about all of that stuff behind like you can hear that anger like in his voice like his whole body like tenses up and at one point his whole face just goes like beat red you could tell like all these years later he is still mad as hell about the shit that went down on this film like he is still very upset about a lot of it oh yeah definitely like they 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 
are angry when they so <clears throat> actually when you said about um all the extra stuff they did mm-hmm. so the guy who played ben and reed richards they did they did unpaid comic book appearances right. so like sorry comic book convention appearances they 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 went to different comic book shops like yeah. sign signings that they, they they spoke to roger corman and he said look i can't underwrite it but here's a thousand stills you know yeah. so they could sign etc and you know, there's pictures of them at booths and 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 all this kind of stuff. And they they yeah, they, they are probably really they probably were loving it. In all honesty, they probably thought this is this is it. You know, mm-hmm. and and they were doing all of this unpaid. You know, the guy who played Ben Grimm. He referred to himself as the money man. Yeah, and and, they, and he hired a publicist as well. Right, and, and those um, are not cheap. Believe me. No, no. So basically, so they did it all his own di- uh, own dime, mm-hmm. and then eventually, so while all this is going on, all this promotion, suddenly the call comes in to cease and desist. Right. After they got a premiere, because it was supposed to premiere at the Mall of Americas in Minneapolis. Yeah. And that was the point where Aviara got word of it. And he was like, what? No, that's not happening. And like, what I really want to know is I really want to know, like, how badly did they want Avi out? Because it seems like he he was the problem with man thing. Right. There was a lot of hullabaloo around Avi and his opinions about man thing and and that. And then here he comes up again. I mean, of course, at the time he was the head of Marvel. So he was the Kevin Feige before we mm-hmm. got Kevin Feige. Um, but it's just so interesting. It's like nobody gave a shit until it became big enough to give a shit about. Right. Like that's so that's how much of a joke all of the people in charge thought that this production was. They really thought that. It's never going to make it. It's never going to do anything like Marvel was so unconcerned because they just were convinced that nobody could make a movie that fast. Like, I'm pretty sure they just assumed that the rights were going to come back to them. Yeah, (laughs) I think I I kind of when I when I sort of watch this documentary, I get a sense that even the leadership of the, the people that wanted to commission this movie, obviously their agenda was to keep the rights. Right. But there's obviously an element of people that were involved in this actually thought, well, maybe we could make some money out of it. Cause like, why would you allow them to promote it? Why would you get a, you know, a premiere date? Maybe they hoped that they could make something like even their money back. Like, you know, so I don't know. It feels like there was a bit of cross wiring. And then like you say, then Avi found out about it and it was like, no, this, this is done. This is not happening. Um, I get the feeling that Stan Lee wasn't particularly interested in this happening, but he probably had no power. So yeah, whilst he was a big man in the comic world. Yeah, because he was he... a figurehead. I don't think he actually had any control at Marvel. Because no, this was no, before no. Marvel went bankrupt, right? So Marvel no. went bankrupt in before Blade, if I'm remembering correctly. I know that they had they went bankrupt, and that's kind of what they were rebuilding from. And that was part of the reason how... Disney jumped on the Marvel train. Uh, well, no, they'd started to repair themselves um, before Disney bought them. Because uh, Disney didn't buy them until after Iron Man. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, no, no, they start. They started the MCU without. Um, uh... Yeah. Okay. So I found the actual quote. So the actual quote from Stanley. It's from an article that he was interviewed for for Los Angeles Magazine, and he said. The entire production was a sham. It was never supposed to be seen by any living human beings. 
So way, way to throw them under the bus, Dan. So uh, Marvel actually declared bankruptcy on December twenty seventh, nineteen ninety six. So this is okay. after this movie. So, so yeah, two years before uh, Blade. Yeah, and then they they started to rebuild. I think Blade Blade is essentially we've always said is the without Blade we probably wouldn't have had the MCU. So that I would it agree made with that. so much without it had so much money. But mm-hmm. um, anyway, so yeah, basically, so they got the call. Movie was done. And then you can see the anger in yeah. this, pr- primarily within the guy who played Reed Richards and Victor Von Doom, mm-hmm. and especially the guy who played Reed Richards. Like, and he even swore in the documentary, he was like, fuck. Like, yeah. And uh, you can imagine the, the, the temper between the two of them. They pro- like, because you could see now he's still angry when this documentary yeah. got made. If he's still angry in 2015. <laughs> yeah. So like, 20, like 20 years later. I mean, he was still, they filmed this in 2013. So 1993, all of the shit goes down. 20 years later, he's still mad about it. And I bet you anything, if somebody talked to him right now in 2023, 30 years later, he's still going to be mad as hell about it. Um, and also he said him and his kids or something haven't watched the Fantastic Four movies that follow. Oh, yeah. The the guy who played Ben said that. He was like, oh, my, yeah, sorry, sons, yeah, yeah. my sons even told me that they're not going to watch the new ones because they feel like it's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, anyway, let's summarize about this. This documentary, I, I am not someone who normally watches documentaries about films. I yeah, but this I, was I mean, interesting. This is a really good documentary. I think for the fact that it was put together on less than five thousand pounds or dollars, whatever. Yeah. And maybe yeah, it's probably not made much more money than ten, fifteen grand. I'd love to know if anybody knows what it's made. I'd love yeah. to know how much it's made. I, I think the whole premise of making a documentary about an unreleased movie is a really clever idea. Yeah. I really hope, do you know what? Like, if Marty Langford is listening, can you make one about Batgirl? Like, please. Yeah, we like, want to know. Like, we, I mean, DC has so much bullshit going on. We want to know, man. We want to know what happened. What happened? Oh, what Mark, happened? Come on, Marty. I'll back your Kickstarter. Yeah. <laughs> I, although I imagine like this one is going to get a new another boost when we do get the Fantastic Four in the MCU in 2026. Yeah. So I'm not going to put the 800 pound one, but I'll happily stick the 10 dollars yeah. in or 10 pounds <laughs> in. Right, I'll go. I'll go with the Doombot level. Uh, so man, oh man. yeah, I, there was one more quote that I wanted to talk about. Like there was a guy that they interviewed in here is Jonathan Fernandez, and he was the mm-hmm. VP of marketing for Concord and New Horizon, the other studio that was helping fund all of this stuff. And even at his level, he thought he was like, there was just not a shadow of a doubt. We thought we were making a theatrical release. We all did. And he 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 goes on to say, like, I think the film was never meant to be released. Like, I think the film was a way for the producers to extend their option on the material at a very, very low cost. And I think this was just written off as a development cost or a production cost. I just like can't imagine like you you've taken a year of people's lives and just like written it off like it was nothing. Oh, that must be it. Must be heart heartbreaking as an actor or an actress. Well, yeah, but also like think about what what you had to say no to to say yes to this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, what did you turn down because you thought to yourself, "Holy shit, I'm going to be in a superhero franchise." Like, yes, I'm going to turn this other role down and I'm going to take this superhero role instead. I mean, they could have missed several actual big breaks. Yeah. Um, that's the thing. They could have turned down some actual big breaks to be in this. So. Oof, man, oh, man. Yeah. It gives, like, a whole new perspective on the actual the actual movie. Like, 
I, I mean, I, I don't think I'm going to change my rating. I still, I still think it's a, you know, it's a B movie. Like it's not meant to be that great, but like, I just, I feel so, I can feel their betrayal is, is I guess what I'm trying to say. Like you can, listening to them talk about it 20 years later, you can feel just like how burned they feel. Oh, so yeah, I love like the director, um, Ole Sasson. Mm-hmm. He goes, I'm um, Sicilian. So part of me was like, uh, who do yeah. I go after? Yeah, whose kneecaps am I busting? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, he, <laughs> he, he was furious. Like even yeah. he was furious. They were all like, and that's why I think watching this documentary, like last week we pretty much tore that film apart. And yeah. then this, watching this film, so this documentary, so the documentary itself, I think, is actually really good. I think mm. this is a really well put together. And Marty Lang should do more documentaries. I don't know what else he's done, but he, yeah, he's clearly got a good eye for putting documentaries together. If you've not watched this documentary, it's well worth the couple of quid on Amazon or yeah. Apple to go and watch it. Um, and actually the film itself, whilst it's not the best film in the world, it's actually far better than some of the movies that actually have been released, like Man Thing, you know. Yeah. Um, I would even say it's probably on par with How the Duck and even How the Duck had more money spent on it. Mm-hmm. So, but this documentary itself, I think, is a really good documentary. It's difficult as I bring this to a close with you. Um, I've enjoyed watching this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was really worthwhile watching. I probably would even watch it again because yeah. I think it is actually really well put together and the side of Hollywood that we've, we've talked about and found out about is very interesting uh essentially it is corruption that's oh yeah it's it a is. money game it's all a money game yeah. it's a money and the option game that's it like yeah. people only care about what they what they can access and what they have access to exclusively versus mm. anybody else's well-being it is very it's very skeezy mm-hmm. for sure well well even in the gaming industry isn't it microsoft trying to buy the um studio that makes call of duty I, and um oh yeah uh activision blizzard yeah and sony yeah. are trying to block it sony are trying to block it yeah because so, they know that once they get that in sony don't have any decent first party shooters so but like you say exclusivity so yeah. no wonder they don't want to lose their exclusive agreement and they may not have even been able to buy it back somebody could have beaten them to it so mm-hmm. so that like you say write off a million pounds tax write off yeah there you go uh, a million another. bucks to make 300 million. Like that's a no brainer. Mm-hmm. If I'm in business and someone's like, if you give me a million bucks, then I'm going to show you how you can make a million turn into 300 million. I'm saying yes. Every fucking time, every time mm-hmm. I'm saying yes to that. I don't care who I have to burn, but yeah, I'm taking that. That's a, I mean, that's a hell of a turnover, right? I'm looking forward to actually now moving into the movies that got made because of this. So, oh yeah, I know. Uh, so watching those films again from, from this angle like i think it's going to be a totally different experience yeah definitely so well, we've never done documentaries before so i feel a bit weird i don't, kind yeah, of I don't know how to it. rate this i don't think i don't know we can uh, skip we a can rating rate it. yeah like well i guess in terms of it being put put together well i think it's a five out of five yeah i would I give it a five like it was super informative the, the, they got all of the right people the only two people that they couldn't get were stan lee and that uh burnt eichinger guy so yeah. I think they've done really. I think Mark Mark Langford has put this together really well. I would yeah. say, yeah. I, I mean, it's weird to rate a documentary, but he's done a really good job, and I would recommend this for anyone, even if you hadn't seen this movie. It's really well done. Yeah. So anyway, to continue our Fantastic Four month of May, we oh, oh re- man, we're going to be reviewing the Fantastic Four two thousand and five. So. Yeah, I'm looking forward to next week now for sure. Yeah. Like, because um, I'm, I'm going to watch that with a whole different lens. 
Um, right, anyway, so you can follow us on social media. We're Geeks and Niche everywhere, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Come say hello. Tell us what you mm-hmm. thought of this documentary. Yeah. And you can get this podcast wherever you get your podcast. Google, Poppy, and Apple, Spotify. We are everywhere. So please leave us a five-star review and tell your geeky friends. Good journey. Good journey. <laughs>